Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. Welcome back to Stimulate Your Mind, everyone. Today, we'll be discussing mental health in a blanket statement. So we'll be looking at the perception of mental health and mental illness, identifying that individuals that you know or see uh, have mental illness or how that, mani- how that behavior manifests. And we'll also look at certain coping mechanisms and therapy options. So today, I'm joined by Barack Hussein, great friend and sister to me. Barack Hussein is a Canadian-Iraqi registered psychotherapist practicing at the Health and Counseling Services at Carleton University for the past 13 years. She helps students from all sorts of backgrounds through issues ranging from anxiety, depression, stress, culture shock, identifying challenges, suicide, relationship issues, abuse, and a whole lot more. She's also done lots of work all over the world in countries like Canada, the US, the UK, Australia, also holding, holding multiple conferences and holding her own talk shows and support networks. Thank you very much for joining me today, Barak. Assalamu alaikum. It's my pleasure and honor. It's been a while since we've had a chat, but today we'll be looking at mental health in a blanket statement and then further, further on, we'll be doing a series looking at the certain aspects of mental health. So, just to start off with, why did you start practicing as a psychotherapist? I've always found it interesting how people behave, how they interact with each other. And since I was very young, my mom noted to me that I was always there listening to people with their problems. Or I would come home upset, crying over their problems. And uh, she told me, well, you know, you could put this into your work potentially, but you have to learn how to be tough in the sense not to let people's problems and challenges make you feel this burdened. And coming from a typical Iraqi family where education was important, alhamdulillah, it was important for both the males and the females in my family. I was the eldest where I was supposed to go into medicine. And that's typical. Either you're an engineer yep. or medicine, that's what you're supposed to do. So for me, it was a dictora. <laughs> and uh, my dad highly valued education as we were growing up and him having a PhD in physics, there was a high standard to achieve there. So the expectation was that I would go into medicine and I would go into psychiatry through medicine. So initially that was the plan, but I quickly realized that I don't have the brains for the sciences and the maths, even though I have a great respect for them, especially given the father who has a PhD in physics, mashallah. I quickly realized that's not my area. I was more into the social sciences, more into public speaking, the languages and the psychology and the sociology and the history and so on and so forth. So I was able to do that growing up through public speaking competitions. And I did it in the third language uh, in Canada. It's our second uh, official language, French. I quickly learned that. So Alhamdulillah, my dad allowed me, so to speak, to do these academic type of activities that's all I was allowed to do. And then it's home and school. That's yep. it. There's nothing clean. So I really was able to put my abilities in these areas that was allowed for me at the time, grooming into medicine. But like I said, I quickly realized that wasn't my thing. And all the courses that I was taking in my psychology degree related to science to get into medical school, medical school were quite heavy. And at some point there, I realized that's not the right thing for me. And I think we all go through these struggles uh, when we try to figure out what we, yeah, what we want to do, the pressure from our families, society, your own personal expectations. 
Alhamdulillah, I came to that realization one day when I went to a workshop on the graduate studies that I ended up studying, which was counseling and psychology. And this was information that I was trying to get back for the work I was doing when I worked at the career services as a university student. That changed my direction from applying to medical school to applying for this graduate program, which was the perfect fit for me. And going into that practice, the field of study rather, it just made sense, alhamdulillah. And I never looked back since. And I remember that afternoon coming back from the workshop, calling my mother and telling her, I'm not applying to medical school. I had the application in my hand. I'm going to go to this. It was one of those aha moments, the yeah. enlightenment moment. What was your mother's reaction to that? <laughs> go for it. Yeah, for go it. for it's, it. My it's dad really good that you had that support. Alhamdulillah. My mom was very nurturing in our studies. Uh, she has these honorary degrees from me and my siblings now through her support. My dad, bless him, on the other hand, was, no, you're not going to succeed in this. You have to be a doctora. Uh, bless him. Uh, but subhanAllah, you know, years later when I, alhamdulillah, graduated and succeeded in my work, he was extremely proud and likes to show off that my daughter does this now, you know, yeah. alhamdulillah. And, and this is one of the challenges that I think a lot of our community youth go through is that we have to have that communication with our parents. My dad at the time wouldn't hear of it because his Araqi mentality was this. Over the years, like I said, that changed and that encouraged me So to, to get into that. So I knew early on what I wanted to do was to help people. But I was trying to figure out along the way how to do that exactly. It made sense eventually to get into psychology and then specialize in counseling and psychotherapy. And during my studies, I had more aha moments, which helped me decide even further what I'm doing now, which was to combine spirituality and faith into practice clinically. And I was the only person as a Muslim, as a female hijabi in my classes. And I wouldn't say I was picked on, but definitely noticed yeah. when I spoke about faith and culture. I recall in one of my uh, micro counseling classes, theories class. The professor jumped from talking about Western psychology to Far East psychology. And I'm like, professor, where's the Middle East psychology? Yep. He said, that's what you're going to focus on in your <laughs> practice, in your studies. And I was kind of upset at the time because coming from uh, undergrad, I had all these ideas of what I'm going to do. And I had old papers that I was just going to add more research on set and ready to go. And one of them was based on that. Little did I know at the time what an influence that would be. And it was on Viktor Frankl, who talks about finding the search for meaning, the man finding meaning in their life. And it was very much based on spirituality and God and religion. Based on that, alhamdulillah, I was able to develop my graduate studies research on Islamic counseling and psychology theory into practice. And that was incredible to do because the professor encouraged me to do that. And all of my other classes were based on that, whether my research class, where they teach you the basics of how to set up an actual research. And so the beginning part was the research for this, the lit review yeah. and looking at what was out there. And so when you ask me this question, it's not a simple black and white answer because there are levels and steps to it. And this was the next level in the sense of how hard it was at the time when I was studying to find anything related to Islamic psychology and counseling from journals to actual books at the time. And I had to use loosely translated, really bad actually translated books yep. 
from ethics and spirituality, but I couldn't find anything at the time. There were no Islamic counseling journals or anything around mental health that we could put our hands on at the time for this type of research. So a lot of my research was qualitative. I did interviews with scholars and alimas and talking to people and just finding really small articles on the internet at the time and using uh, faith-based practices from our theories classes that I would transfer over to Islamic counseling. Alhamdulillah, it was tight, but I was able to do it, put in my graduate studies in that area, which then was the basis, and I didn't know at the time, for what I'm doing now. So not only do I do the psychotherapy, like you said, uh, at the university where I work with a young population of students in our medical clinic and especially international students, which then opens up the doors working yeah. with Muslims. And we have a huge Muslim population in uh, Carleton University because of the internationalization of, of students. So they wanted to have somebody who has that knowledge and background of working with different cultures and faith. And alhamdulillah, I was able to use what my research was into practice with clients of faith-based models, but also Muslim clients. Now, at that time, we didn't have social media. Maybe Facebook had just started up, right? Emailing, you know, and messaging. Like, I know probably sound like a dinosaur when I talk like that. In a few years, we're all going to be talking about the new technologies the younger people have. But it truly was like that. We didn't have social media at the time. It only blew up the last few years. I was already doing this type of work, whether it was public speaking, training, workshop, facilitation within my social network here in Ottawa and going to conferences in different cities, et cetera, et cetera, and presenting even this research that I did at national conferences to talk about how to treat Muslim clients and clients of different faiths. That was already in the works. But then when social media happened, and I think this is how Australia heard of the work that I did. Yep. It was through social media. I was doing presentations and airing them live at the time to talk about mental health because I was very passionate about it. And especially within our communities where there's such stigma around it. So using the tool of social media, it was slowly getting the word out there. People as far as Australia saw it and invited me over. And, you know, the rest was history after that because people locally then said, hold on, she go to Australia. Why is she there in Australia and England? We want her here too to yep. talk. They really connected. So essentially, this whole journey started with going into medicine, tweaking it along the way, because I saw that I wanted to help people, but not from the cell yep. biology, from the soul. That's what really inspired me and connected me to it. And like I said, years later, through the medium of the Muslim counselor, being able to get the message out. Inshallah, we'll talk more about it in terms of what mental health is, how it impacts us, how faith is related, how it's not connected. And I think over the last few years, our communities has done a great job of opening up to these concepts. And look at us, you know, we're having a podcast now on talking about it. What I didn't have back then access to in terms of research and professionals in the field, mashallah, now we have full-fledged conferences at the international level when it comes to Islamic psychology and psychotherapy and psychiatry, because there's so many different fields, yeah. just like other sciences. We have full-fledged journals, the Muslim Mental Health Journal, the Journal of Muslim Mental Health, rather. They hold annual conferences. We've got the Canadian Mental Health. We've got the Serenity Islamic Mental Health, which is my own group here in Ottawa. And we can see there's been a huge progression, mashallah. So all that hard work at the beginning when nothing was there, I'd say has paid off now beautifully 
in the sense that now we've become more aware of how important this is. And, you know, that essentially answers that question in terms of why did I start practicing? Because I believe there is a connection between faith and psychology and how we can use both to really help people and not to feel isolated and struggle on their own to the point where people would want to take their lives. And these are issues that we see time and time again. So you touched on a couple of things that um, mental health in Muslim communities, for example, has a stigma attached to it. But then you mentioned later on that it became something that more people were aware of and it was less, for example, taboo to speak about. However, mental health generally, not just in our communities, but in general, has a, has a negative stigma attached to it. What are some methods of changing the view in mental health and mental illnesses? Well, we need to understand the difference between what mental health is and mental illnesses and psychology. And I know from the, I always use this Iraqi example of psychology because I think it truly represents a lot of the cultures when it looks at the perception of psychology. When I first started studying it, my own people in my community say, well, and I'll translate, they'd say, why are you studying psychology? You're going to be just as crazy as those people that you're going to be treating. Yeah. And I think this is the common misconception that people have when they hear psychology, when they hear mental health. They think that it has to do with being crazy, so to speak, right? And so that is the misconception that people have. And so when you connect it with the language that people understand, so for example, Instead of saying to somebody, for example, you have depression, you have anxiety, you have a personality disorder, people can be put off by that. And it's scary because there's shame around that. There's taboo. They, be, they become the other. They become the other rather than somebody who could be diabetic or have, and I always use this example, a broken leg or have diabetes, a physical illness. We understand that. We honor that. We help people who have issues with physical illnesses. We go out of our way to go to somebody who's in the hospital for that. We see the opposite with people, for example, who deal with mental health issues, a psychotic breakdown or a suicide attempt or a panic attack. And it's scary when we hear these because we don't quite understand that. When we use the example of physical illnesses and mental illnesses, I think that breaks down some of the barriers and the misconceptions. Because then you have a connection that way. We're normalizing it. You can have a, a depressive episode, just like you would have a low insulin reduction in your system, right? Or high glucose and how physically you respond to that. Your environment, your genetics, your past history, trauma, etc. All of that can have an impact on your mental health. So we need to understand the difference essentially between mental health and mental illnesses. Mental health, essentially what it means is the overall balance of everything in your lives, socially, economically, personally, academically, physically, and mentally. When they're all in balance, you're doing well. You've got good mental health, just like you would for physical health, right? When we hear physical health, people often say things like eating healthy, exercising, you know, wellness, these types of things. It's positive imagery when we think about physical illness. But then when we talk mental health, sorry, not physical illness, physical health. When we talk mental health, right away, I hear people and I ask them in my workshops and training, the answer comes back as, oh, it means depression. It means suicide. It means ABC. And it's ironic that way because we're not talking about illnesses right now. We're talking about overall mental health. How do you get to mental illness is when you're off balance with these things, just like you would 
in a physical way. So when we talk about it in this manner, I find that people connect with that idea better. It makes more sense. It's common. You're using the layman's language of understanding basic things. So for example, someone who's dealing with depression, rather than saying you're depressed, you're suicidal, we can perhaps use the language of saying, it seems that, you know, you're very low mood, low energy, you're fatigued, you're not eating well, your hygiene's a bit off, you're not coming to work, you're not doing well, you're not coming to our Hasaniyats and centers like you used to. Is there anything I can help you with? You see that language right there? You're breaking down the barriers. It, becomes, you're making, it normalizes the, the mental health or the mental illness. Exactly. And, and it's no longer an illness here because we're dealing with it in terms of health-wise, yep. right? And so when we normalize mental illnesses, just like physical illnesses, I think this is where we can break down barriers. Like you said, key word here is normalizing it. Yep. And when we talk about it this way, it's no longer the crazies, right? In yep. our in our community that we're talking about, but rather, yeah, this makes sense. Now we take it a step further to what I was saying earlier about faith. There's a huge connection there. Definitely. And if you're using the language of faith, when it comes to healing, when it comes to illnesses, when it comes to how to overcome it or using faith and rituals to deal with the illnesses and the challenges, that's when people are interested. Definitely. So you mentioned a few of these, but are, are there any other proactive methods that could be practiced in developing a more caring and understanding society to better assist those suffering from mental illness? There has to be compassion, no judgment and understanding. Meaning, when somebody comes to you, for example, and says, I have thoughts of harming myself, I've had thoughts of killing myself, I no longer want to live. These are hard things to hear. Even as a trained hardcore counselor now for years, yeah. I still get oh, a little bit of, oh, you know, that feeling when I, when I hear something like that. And I think that's a normal human uh, reaction. If we don't have that reaction when we hear of difficult things like that, I think we become desynthesized and no sympathy and compassion. So I just so want to, I just to quickly touch on something you said. You said it's not a it's not a normal thing. Why do you say it's not a normal thing? It's not a normal thing to be desynthesized. You mean? Yes, to to issues with with like another human. You said that like you have those reactions sometimes where you're like, oh, what are you talking about? Why'd you just say that? Now, and that's that's normal, I guess. But why is it normal? Because we're human. We naturally have compassion for our brothers and fellow brothers and sisters. So why is At it that we have that that ugh reaction? That ugh reaction, not ugh as in oh this is horrible or this is disgusting or get away from me. I didn't mean it as a judgment. I meant it more of oh dear, you know, khatiya, oh haram, you know, yamshahar as the Lebanese would say, like, oh, this is so difficult to hear that this person is feeling this way. So, that's so it's more I'm of a shock to a person who's shock. who's in a state that's uh I guess normal um and not suffering from mental health issues. No, what I mean, uh, Brother Ali, is that I I would say it's a normal reaction for us to feel something and respond to somebody when they come to you in pain, it becomes not normal when we don't respond to pain. That's something I would be concerned about. So yeah. what I mean is even years later, I still feel or jump or respond to somebody who tells me this. I think it's a good sign, which shows that we have compassion and we're not judging and we're not, we don't become dead. That's what I mean by yeah. desensitizing when you hear such a thing. So do you feel, do you feel that, um, society these days is becoming desensitized to mental health because of the stigma attached to it? I think we've come in a 
good progressive way to opening up to talking about mental health. We still have a lot more work to do compared to where we were five years ago. I'd say we've come a long way. Proof of that within our Muslim communities, just look at some of the lectures we have on the Mumbar in Muharram, Shahar Ramadan, in other parts of the year for events. Sheikhs and alims are now talking about the concept of mental health and applying it from an Islamic perspective to the stories of our NBA and of our Imams, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we, we see the connection now, how far we've come forward with that. So that, I would say, is progress. Whereas a few years ago, even the concept of mental health was very foreign, but also hugely a taboo area. Like, we can't talk about these things. That's shameful. That's ayyib. Now, however, you see, like I said, big scholars and speakers and just in our centers where people are embracing this because they realize how important it is. We see how many young people are committing suicide. We're seeing the rise of alcoholism. We're seeing the rise of domestic violence, families breaking apart. We're seeing more people coming out, asking for help for depression or needing that. The fact that our communities are aware of these issues now, they're doing something about it and it's being addressed at the important levels of the majalis where people attend. And, you know, you're, you, you come to these majalis to obviously learn and honor uh, the Ahlul Bayt and our prophets. At the same time, it's the one of the best mediums, I would say, to introduce these types of topics and link them Definitely. so that people can normalize to that topic and understand it better rather than it being such a foreign topic as it was a few years ago. Touching on uh, some of those things that you mentioned, for example, in, in Australia, for example, domestic violence and alcoholism are, are pretty big issues um, that we face. And we've just been joined by our, by our new guest, uh, Barak's cat. Yes. He, yeah, Barak's cat. His name is Laws. He's Laws. well known in my programs. Uh, he comes over and meows and requests to join. So I, I bring him up. He likes to say salam. Just to give and him some time. Yeah, and uh, no, uh, this is actually true. Each time he hears me in a program, he comes over. So I bring him in. And what I also like to say about him is that he's a huge part of uh, maintaining mental health, good mental health. <laughs> a support animal. Therapy. Absolutely. And a lot of people may be turned off by animals, especially when they're in communities, not big yeah. on animals. But there has been evidence in um, Western psychology that pet therapy is very effective for depression. And just having a cute, fuzzy animal who's sweet and friendly, it does a lot. And they actually have pets uh, at the university. They would bring in dogs. Yeah, uh, they've, they've it, introduced that into Sydney universities as well. That's amazing. Yeah. And they would even have pets in uh, elderly homes as well to keep the mood up. So there's a lot of research uh, that uh, proves that. So he's, <laughs> he's our guest today as well as evidence of how to maintain positive mental health. Um, yeah, he's actually sitting here a bit longer, so we'll keep him here as long as possible. <laughs> Perfect. He can co-host on the show for today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so as, a, as I was mentioning, uh, um, domestic violence and alcoholism are major issues in Australia right now. Like we see domestic violence, especially during COVID, has been on the rise. Um, yes. And alcoholism has always been an issue, especially with drunk driving being the biggest killer on Australian roads. Um, mm. So what are some signs that an individual is suffering from mental health? It depends. It depends what we're looking at in terms of what kind of disorder they may be dealing with. If we're looking at depression, 
the most common ones have to do with, let's say, appearance of hygiene in terms of loss of weight, gain of weight. Perhaps they're not as engaged as they once were, like I said, in their school, in their work, in their community, in their sports, whatever things that they were engaged in before they could have had a loss of interest in that. And I almost got a bit here. <laughs> so these could be some telltale signs. Obviously, the most biggest one that we're familiar with when it comes to depression is sadness, right? Or people having suicidal thoughts potentially. So these are pretty common when it comes to depression. And if it's consistently over a period of time of more than two weeks, I mean, there's no exact time frame, but we look at it consistently over two weeks and more. Anxiety, for example, has to do with perhaps heart rate, like heart pounding, shaking, a lot of sweating, constant thoughts, constant racing thoughts, obsessive thoughts, perhaps, right? Worrying, that's also associated with anxiety. So these are some common ones that we hear about. And if they are not taken care of, they can develop into further challenges. For example, with depression, we know if it's not taken care of, it could lead to suicidality. So that could mean having thoughts about not wanting to live or actively wanting to kill themselves with a plan. Or it could be just passing thoughts. Sometimes people have the thought of, I don't want to be here. I don't want to exist. I don't want to be alive. These, these thoughts can be quite scary uh, for Muslims to hear because we know in our religion, it's haram to take a soul, including yourself. And there's been this huge debate or, you know, talk around this topic. Somebody commits suicide. There's a shame to that family because this person is haram. That's a misconception. And I've actually had chats with scholars about this because it is hard to understand and grasp it when you have this underlying concept in Islam, it's haram to take a life. And this is somehow brushed under that category. So we have to talk about this very carefully because it can be misunderstood and justified. The idea behind somebody taking their life is that they're unwell. They are ill. In the end, who are we to judge? We cannot judge if this person commit haram or not. And I think. There is an illness in the society when you were focusing on if that person committed haram rather than what caused this person to get to that point. There's a sickness in the community. We need to be able to get to the point of helping people before they feel that they, there's no other option. We have to be supportive. You asked earlier, what do we need to do to change? We need to have, like I said, more compassion, more understanding. And judgment has to go. Like I said, somebody comes to you with presenting these signs, like we said, depression that could lead to suicidality. We have to be really careful how you're going to respond to this person. Are you going to be haram? You can't do that or play the haram police on them. Yep. You're not, you're not invoking trust here with that person. You're most likely pushing them away. They're not going to come to you for support or help if you're going to push them away with such harsh judgment. You cannot be the haram police when somebody comes to you with an issue when it comes to mental health. Rather, be a good listener. What does that mean? Well, we've been trained for years in counseling how to be a good listener. Some of us perhaps a little bit more natural than others. The idea here being a good listener is to just allow the person to speak to you without you interrupting and giving judgment. 
Let them speak with you. Show compassion and care without judgment because they, they cannot handle the judgment. They're not there for that. You want to bring them in so that you can get them the support that they need, the professional help. That's the number one thing when it comes to that listening aspect and the judgment. So taking a quick look at the biological side of things, what happens in an individual's brain when they're suffering from different mental health issues? That's a very good question. Let's see if I remember my uh, neurobiology and neuropsychology. In essence, though, there is an imbalance, a chemical imbalance shown in studies and research when it comes to the brains of people dealing with depression and when it comes to anxiety as well. So there's an increase and decrease of different hormones in our body that are related to mental illnesses, just like when we compare it again to diabetics, right? There's an increase and decrease of insulin. You have to take a certain amount of glucose, rather, sorry. Of, so you need to take the insulin to manage the glucose. So there's a variety of different medications. And I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding and fear around medication when it comes to mental health illnesses, because people feel that they may be addicted to it, that it's for life and that there's something shameful with that. But again, I flip it back and say, well, you have a chemical imbalance in your body when it comes to diabetes right? Yeah. Is there shame in you taking insulin to manage that? Uh, is there shame? Definitely. Yeah. Or is there shame in you trying to manage your lifestyle when it comes to healthy eating and exercise when it comes to being a diabetic? Not really. In fact, you go to do that because you're trying to save your life. If we apply the same concept here to the biological factors, because the reason why I can't answer it just fully like that is because there's not one factor only that can contribute to mental illness. There is a variety. The biological factor is one of them. That's only one of them. You have the environmental, right? You have nurture versus nature. Yeah. You also have stressors in your environment. You have past childhood trauma, past abuse uh, experiences. All of these different things can impact, of course, the upbringing in the household that you're in. Are you in a war-torn country or in a stable, safe country? All of these factors, along with many others, including biology, impact whether you have a mental illness or not. You could be living your whole life, alhamdulillah, with nothing happening. And then all of a sudden, you could be experiencing a panic attack, anxiety. And oh, I see a lot of people like that, like, everything's fine in my life. Why is this happening? In this case, we can rule out, you know, all the environmental factors, all of these other issues and say, Perhaps it is a biological factor. Perhaps it's a hereditary matter. Just like how we inherit Ill, Ill, physical illnesses from family, there is this generational uh, hereditary factor that is involved. And so when there's that imbalance in our body, it's not our fault, right? It's just like these other illnesses. So managing them with medication along with the proper lifestyle changes as well as the therapy that has a huge impact on maintaining and helping with that biological factor, including the other factors. You mentioned a few of these coping mechanisms. So what are some other coping mechanisms that could be used for those suffering from mental illness? You mentioned uh, medication, you mentioned lifestyle changes, you mentioned therapy. But what are some other things that uh, individuals with mental health can explore to better assist themselves in managing, with managing mental health? It does... We do have a variety of different things that impact that, right? And that also includes the environment that we engage in. So we mentioned medication, 
therapy, uh, lifestyle changes, but it's also the environment of people. So if you have a toxic environment around you with toxic people, that is going to impact you, of course. That needs to be work on. You cannot expect that type of growth when you are in that toxic environment. It just doesn't work. You definitely can look at coping mechanisms of dealing with this toxic environment. For how long are you going to be able to handle that before it deteriorates your mental health, right? So we skipped over what therapy means, by the way, because uh, a lot of people could have misconceptions around what that could entail. Because when we look at therapy, it's a huge part of that treatment process. Meaning when you speak with a therapist, and what I tell clients is that we hope to create a safe space for you to talk about whatever you bring here. We can set up goals to help you work towards it. I can refer you if it's not something I can do. And in this safe environment of confidentiality, which is a big one in our communities, that people don't go to therapists because they feel that they're not going to help them or rather they're going to disclose their secrets, right? And that's a, one of the big barriers to getting support in our communities. So when you have the safe space, there is growth, there is progress, there's processing. So when you say, what are the things that you can help? Therapy in itself needs to be understood. It is a space to process the challenge. If, you, if you're coming to get support for, let's say, stress issues, then we're going to take a look at the underlying factors involved with the stress in your life. What are the changes that you need to make? So, okay, so eating well, sleeping well, exercise, getting rid of toxic people, influences around you. And of course, another strategy that we could incorporate in the therapy that people can apply outside of therapy as part of the strategies is using faith, right? And we've been saying that again and again so far, how the impact of faith affects our well-being and our mental health. And it absolutely has a huge positive impact. You just need to look at the research in mainstream faith-based psychology, as well as now, alhamdulillah, we have a lot more when it comes to Muslim research and psychology, where there's been huge links, for example, with just the ritual act of salah and how it is beneficial for you when we've known for 1400 years that it's beneficial for us. And the research shows, subhanAllah, when it comes down to the actual movement of the prayer, it mimics similarly to yoga practices, the movements of it. And what happens when you bend your head down and what happens with the chemicals and the blood that comes to the different parts of your brain. It's fascinating when you look into that research. I think when it comes to faith and ritual practice as a part of therapy, we've overlooked that because we hear often Unfortunately, and I don't, I don't agree with when people say things such as, you just need to pray more. You just need to read more Quran. You just need to do this, this, and that. You need to have more faith in Allah. You'll be fine. I think this is part of the language that we hear in our communities a lot that can impact people on such a negative level because they feel inferior. They feel that they're bad Muslims. This pushes people away from faith even more, I would say, because there's a guilt factor involved. You're shaming. So we need to look at our natural, religious, therapeutic. And I do call them therapeutic because when you can look at salah in different ways, other than this is something we do as Muslims. This is part of our everyday life that has been beaten into our heads. I don't mean it literally. I mean it figuratively by our families. 
although that is also a topic we need to discuss in terms of child rearing and cultural discipline and how that affects our kids, especially when it comes to religion. We want to create foster it as a, a form of love, as a rather form of punishment and, and negativity. Um, in any case, when we can look at, for example, the power of da, when can we, we can look at the Quran as a source of healing. When we look at our salah as a form of balance and well-being, then we can use that language to incorporate it as part of the therapy. Inshallah, we can discuss that in future sessions because that's what my research was based on, is looking at traditional ther therapeutic methods as part of the healing. And there has to be an understanding of how this can benefit you. And if you can look at the Quran and supplications and prayers in from this perspective, then you are more likely to see it as influential in the therapeutic process. Of course, you have people who are describing themselves as Muslims, but they're not practicing. Is this the kind of language you're going to use with them? Of course not. not. It's not going to work. You cannot tell somebody who doesn't pray or doesn't use faith in their lives just because they're named Muhammad or Ahmed or uh, Zahra or any other you know religious type of name to put that in there. It doesn't work like that. It has to come from the person. I'll give you a quick example to answer this question. I've had, of course, lots of clients of Muslim background over the years. Some directly seek me out because of the Muslim background or as a, a professional woman who wears a hijab or a female. And others who, when I walk into the, the waiting room calling out their name, they're quite horrified to see a Muslim hijabi in front of them. <laughs> the idea is because perhaps they're not religious and they have to talk to me about all the haram things that they have done and they're so ashamed and I don't, I don't even address that. They're there because we're talking about an issue that they brought in to help, whether it's academic or stress or mental health related. We'll take a look at that. What I found interesting is because that was never brought up, you notice near the end of the session and they notice there's nothing from me coming at them from a religious perspective. You notice that they start saying things such as, you know, I used to pray. I used to wear the hijab. I'd like to. And I say, OK, so how would you like to incorporate that into the therapeutic process it comes from them, subhanAllah. Definitely. And so they start saying things like, oh, you know, I want to be able to pray more. I'm like, OK, so why don't you try to get in your prayers as part of your therapy? You know, since you say you feel good after reading Quran, you feel good after doing the prayer, you, you feel less guilty. We want to work on reducing that guilt so you're feeling less depressed. So you see how we all link that all together right there. Yeah. This person feels better. So there's a variety of different things. It's not just taking the medication. It's not just going to therapy. It's a whole lifestyle change when it comes to, let's say, the spirituality. Let's say proper exercise, because what happens when you are stressed, there is a huge buildup of stress hormones in your body, cortisol, which can trigger physical illnesses, as we know, as well as mental illnesses. And if we don't take care of that stress through the form of exercise, for example, that buildup can definitely turn into something. For example, me personally, I've learned over the years that if I don't exercise regularly, if I don't get rid of those stress hormones in my body, my stress response is anxiety. In fact, I've experienced panic attacks when I was younger. We didn't know coming from the culture that yeah. I was in, even though I was studying this stuff back then. We didn't know it was a panic attack. I had one right in the middle of my calculus class. And remember what I said earlier, science and math caused me a lot of stress. Yeah. 
I was in my final or second last year heading into university. And I had a lot of courses that I was trying to take to get good marks to eventually get into medical school. It's a different system in Canada. You have to do four years of undergrad, then apply to medical school to get in. So my dad was helping me get past high school to get in quicker. That didn't work for me. It caused a lot of internal stress. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. I was studying during the lunch breaks in the girls' change room to try and finish work and studying late at night. All of that caused a lot of stress on me. And I didn't realize at the time and my body responded in the form of a panic attack. And over the years, now I got the support finally by the right doctors. I went to see a neurologist, a cardiologist, a hemoglobin specialist. Eventually, I went to see a cardiologist who was Southeast Asian, took one look at me and my body language and told my dad back off. <laughs> like, th There's nothing wrong with her except she's dealing with stress and anxiety. So it's really important to recognize how your body responds to stress. Till now, I can recognize that if I don't work out within a two-week period, I'm not eating well or sleeping well, I feel the stress hormone build up in my body, almost like electricity. And I think a lot of people describe it that way too. And as soon as you work out, there's that release of endorphins in your system, which makes you feel better, which is why exercise is prescribed as a form of maintenance. And this is, by the way, from our own faith. Yeah, if definitely. you look back, yeah, being physically fit is important in our faith as encouraged by swimming and horseback riding and archery by the Prophet wasallam and our Imams. Wasallam. It's there. Our prescription has always been there, but we just need a different lens. When we look at psychology, which is right? the study of the self, the self is a concept, an Islamic concept, a Quranic concept with different aspects and, and parts of it. So this is something that is Mentioned in the Quran, there are so much spiritual and, and psycho-spiritual, psychosocial studies done on this. I would say informally in our ethics, in our spiritual ethics and morals. And, and what, what a lot of people learn in Hausa, I would say, in Islamic studies. We also study it in psychology, obviously from a secular perspective. But over the years, there has been this huge movement of faith and spirituality as part of the holistic aspect of how we treat somebody. Just leading off of that, in the age of technology, the age of information, generally you have an issue, you've got a headache, search it up on, for example, Google or whatever it may be. You might ask a friend or you might just think, oh, this is wrong with me. What are the impacts of self-diagnosis? It's good to be self-aware. I think there's a difference between being self-aware and self-diagnosis. If you can be aware, like, for example, I gave the example of I am very much aware of how my body responds to stress. It took a long time to figure that out. A few panic attacks, <laughs> a few emergency situations, but I learned I became self-aware. I didn't self-diagnose. My symptoms themselves showed up that way in a very dramatic way. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I I've heard it over the years. So self-diagnosing is not going to get you anywhere. If we change that connotation to awareness, I think we're in the right direction because with awareness comes progression to getting the proper help. Self-diagnosis, I would say, is a negative term because then somebody could say, oh, I'm fine, you know, and then describes a whole list of negative things related to their symptoms, but they're not doing anything about it. I know what's going on. Okay, so what are you doing about it? I think that's the dangers when it comes to self-diagnosis. Also, 
for again, for example, I'm, I was studying it in the field and I didn't even recognize what was going on because what happens is when you're in the middle of a situation, you are not objective, right? There's a lot of influence of emotion and it's very subjective. Therefore, you are not likely going to be getting it right type of thing, right? Whereas if you have the self-awareness, okay, I'm going to go get some support. A professional can assess and diagnose you, hopefully with the right thing. Because sometimes, you know, medical professionals can be off with what they diagnose. Absolutely. It's human error. That's natural. It's normal. Most of the time, though, you do get the correct or close to it assessment and the proper treatment with it. So I would say self-awareness is the key thing here. Definitely. And just to finish off for the day, what kind of intersectionality exists between social justice and mental health? Interestingly enough, I, I did a recent research on the topic of racism and mental health, which I think is very closely related to this. And there is a connection. For example, if we look at what's happening with the Black movement right now in the world, and that's the research what I focused on. And what the research shows is there's a lot to do with that, especially when it comes to, for it's very deep and there are layers of it. Uh, but essentially, when it comes to the inferiority complex that is put upon the person of color, right? The superiority attitude of the person of the white color that imposes it. And in terms of when it comes to, for example, access to education, to social needs, to employment, et cetera, et cetera. It also comes to when we look at internalization, which is an interesting concept where people are imposing upon themselves that they're not good enough, their skin is not light enough, their hair is not smooth enough. And these are exact concepts used in these research where people are comparing themselves, people of color are comparing themselves, those of white descent, how this is the ideal of beauty, for example, the lighter skin, the smoother hair, et cetera, et cetera. This is what beauty is. This is what success means. This is what accessibility to everything means. And because you are not of that, what does this do? This impacts your sense of self, your self-esteem. This is where the inferiority complex comes in. And people then almost put limits upon themselves in terms of, what they can accomplish, how they can contribute to their growth and their advancement in society because of this, and I would say intergenerational trauma that comes in. And we see this also with the indigenous cultures, the same thing that has happened. And I'm sure it's the same thing in Australia, yeah, similar to Aboriginal and indigenous community. Yeah. Exactly. And there's always a switch of what's the political correct term. I think now in North America, especially in Canada, uh, we're using the indigenous, no longer Aboriginal, indigenous. Yeah. Um, so I hope I'm, I'm correct in that. In any case, to even label sometimes could have colonial aspects that Definitely. impact. They create their own stigma. Uh, exactly. So there is, there is an intersectionality. There is a connection with that. And when you dig deep into that, and that, although, you know, I'm in this field, I had to research it a bit further. And so now I can have this dialogue and when I attend workshops on anti-racism, when it comes to Blacks, it's no longer just that attitude, for example, of, oh, I'm not racist. No, you have to be anti-racist because that impacts your mental health and well-being in the sense that you're not being included. You are not good enough. 
because you are a person of color. I actually just attended uh, the last uh, two days with uh, mental health awareness for black students. The last month, uh, there's been a lot of great programs that I was able to attend. And this is what they were talking about in terms of accessibility, in terms of that inferiority complex, in terms of how students are being mistreated in the attitudes that you find. What can we do to work on that and change? It's because there is that connection there. And I find that when in our communities, especially, there has to be an awareness and an acknowledgement. And having discussions with a lot of my Black brothers and sisters, I learned a lot from them, too, from their personal experience of how within our community, there's a huge disconnect and understanding and compassion. There's almost this attitude of get over it. Really? Yeah. So there's also. Is that, is that the impact of media and especially social media on individuals for example in our communities i i won't go out into other communities because i know my community for example yes. the, the muslim community does media and especially especially social media play a role in that it does but i also have to say like that has its special role absolutely there's a huge impact of social media on mental health and mental illness and racism but i say it's also specifically to this topic when it comes to racism and all of that it's a lack of awareness and knowledge. We don't know the history. And I, I recently learned this from one of my close friends who is of black descent from, uh, from the Caribbean, Caribbean areas. And then she learned this from a lecture that the presence of Muslims from the black African countries was from the year 998. Correct me if I'm wrong. From the year 998, yeah. not in the 13 and 1400s with recent history that we learn about, which shows you the presence of Muslims and black Muslims in North America, how far back it went. So when we look at black Muslims as, oh, you guys are converts or reverts, and there's a whole other issue that we can discuss one day around this from our communities and the attitudes we have, that right there shows it the lack of understanding that people don't even understand that we have Muslims down in the Caribbean. We have Shia Muslims down in those areas that honor Imam Hussein and have Muharram rituals that have changed over the years, of course, but that exists. And so when people learn about that, there's almost like the shock and there's the definitely we have these assumptions. We have these incorrect misconceptions, which all relate to the attitude, how we behave with other people. And it does come down to having that superior attitude towards people of color and black descent which of course is going to impact their mental health. When we talk about inclusion, are we including our black brothers and sisters the same way we would from our own community? You've heard this argument and you've heard this again and again. Would you give your sister, your daughter, somebody yeah, of a definitely. black color? You hear this again and again. Issue. It is, but it also, and I've seen this time and time again within my own community here in Canada and Ottawa, how secluded our brothers and sisters are from that community and how isolated. Alhamdulillah, there's been a change over the last few years, especially with the groups, uh, brother, you and I were talking earlier about the group, the ARC group we have in Ottawa. There's been incredibly inclusive all backgrounds, especially reverts, where I think that stigma has been lifted a little bit and they're working on it, but it's there. And that connection is there. And it truly comes down to education and awareness and knowledge. And there's so much beautiful history and richness other than the Mu'adhin Bilal in, in Islamic yeah, yeah, history. Definitely. You look at people like John, for example. 
And there, we've there is a rich history as well as uh, Imam Ali, for example, going to Abyssinia. There is there's a lot of black history in Islamic history. It's just not given the time or appreciation that it needs to. And if anything, what happened with uh, George Floyd has sparked that, I would say. And one of my, the questions to to finish this off, one of the questions that I asked my friends were. Have you found it's been a change in our community when it comes to this type of attitude? Because I don't know, I, I just felt the morale. And this is when we talk about mental health and wellness. I, you feel it. You feel it in our black brothers and sisters for those who care, right? You, you, you feel that there is this attitude towards them, a disrespect through the actions of the community. And I asked, do you feel after this incident, there's been a change in our community? And the answer back to me was, there's been movement. There's been definitely more programs, but there needs to be more work done to be more inclusive. And it all comes with education. It all comes with that education of awareness. And we have Iraqis who don't even know that we have Muslims, you know, who who are down in the the Caribbeans and, and so on and so forth. They become quite shocked and surprised or then the Mauritius or in our in indigenous cultures as well. You have Muslims who are actually become sorry, uh, indigenous people who are becoming Muslim because it closely relates to their faith as well. It's the same language. So there is a huge intersectionality when it comes to social justice issues such as racism. And if we apply it to other aspects as well, for example, when we look at social issues around women, right? That perhaps is another whole podcast that we Definitely. can do. And I'm just giving the example of women within our community, but also outside as women, as Muslim women, visible with the hijab outside in the community, right? When it comes to social issues such as Islamophobia, that's something we can all relate and connect with. We know that's an issue as well, right? So there's so many different topics we can look at that. I also like to look at, and people may not realize the connection there too, but when we look at the issue of uh, the baqiyah, Yep. How does that make people feel Definitely. that the history of the Ahl al-Bayt time and time again is being wiped out and in the center? It's creating this emotional people. disconnect. An emotional disconnect, but also this, the word just slipped my mind, but um, it's as though we don't matter in that area anymore. Like the Ahl al-Bayt are being wiped out There's a because they're inferior, you know? Like, why are they being wiped out like that? Obviously, the, we know there's a lot of politics Definitely. and uh, around that, but when we're looking at it from a mental health perspective, these people are inferior. Is that why you're doing that? Why? What are you doing to our morale when we see our beloveds? When you see the house of uh, Khadija, alayhi salam, is turned into public toilets, how does that make you feel? When you, when you read about that and when you read about that history, it infuriates you. That's the word I was looking for. It is infuriating to you. It's a lack of respect. It is hurtful. It is disrespectful. So you see how that connects to your wellness. It makes you feel very low. It makes you feel very bad when you see these things happening. It was an interesting one when I was thinking about that. Well, what does social justice mean? These issues, there's so many different issues yeah, that you can apply. Social justice encompasses so many different things. And you see how that it has an impact on your well-being and it comes to inferiority complex. It comes to motivation and using the proper anger because anger can be a healthy thing when you use it the right way with the right intention for the right causes. In this case, for example, when you're standing up for the, the rights of that, when you're standing up for your Islamic rights as a woman, perhaps practicing hijab in society, 
I don't mean it in this feministic way, by the way, which I don't believe in. Uh, because when I say I'm a Muslim, that means I have my rights as a Muslim woman. It's, it's an end of discussion. I think we're being infiltrated by Western ideas of feminism that a lot of our young women are misinterpreting and almost morphing it into their own beliefs of Islamic feminism, which is a, is a non-term, by the way. It's non-existent. Again, when you say you're Muslim, that encompasses it. We'll definitely jot that down as a, as a separate podcast. There's so much to connect with this topic, but it is, I think, important for women to understand this, especially when it comes to the way they view themselves, their wellness, their mental health. We have to be very careful of how we interpret these definitions because as Muslims, we have the base for it. We need to look at it with a fresh lens and understand how it impacts us. Again, like we said, there's so much we can talk about. Inshallah, we look forward to to further. Thank you very much for your time, Barak. Looking forward to the next few podcasts. My pleasure, brother. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcasts where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.